Father, just ask that you would come close to each one of us here just now, today and during this year as we read through the Bible and discuss the Bible. May our time together bring us to a closer friendship and relationship and strengthen our trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the first slide kind of um, asks some, perhaps uh, provokes some thoughts. Uh, Bible study in the 21st century, when there's so much uh, criticism and perhaps negative uh, associations with uh, Bible study and Christianity. Uh, last year, I know I talked with some of you about uh, this book that came out called Unchristian, that evaluated attitudes towards just your average person towards Christians. And it was overall quite uh, negative. Uh, down at the bottom, just a few notches above prostitutes and uh, other people in society, that the term evangelical Christian had quite a, a negative connotation. And of course, there are lots of other challenges, and so I just want to ask, kind of have you think, what's, if food is nice, of course, but uh, what's your goal in uh, participating in a Bible study? What are you hoping to get out of a Bible study? When we consider people like, uh, well-known people, like Mark Twain, who have read the Bible. I don't know how much of it he read, but he certainly had a lot to say about the Bible. And uh, he came to some pretty strong convictions about the Bible. I like how he starts out here. He said, our Bible reveals to us the character of our God. And that is essentially my thesis for this whole Bible study, is that we study the Bible to see, to understand the person of who our God is. Hey, here's how Mark Twain put it together. With minute and remorseless exactness, it is perhaps the most damnatory biography that exists in print anywhere. It makes Nero an angel of light by contrast. To trust the God of the Bible is to trust an irascible, vindictive, fierce, and ever-fickle and changeful master. And so uh, some people are quite turned off by the picture of God that is portrayed in the Bible, especially the Old Testament which will be the entire year, the Old Testament. So we're going to have to deal very soon with the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, some, some real challenges. Well, here's a contemporary well-known individual, Richard Dawkins. And his quote is uh, quite shocking on the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malvolent bully. I had to practice that a few times to get it all out. But, um, well, how do you read the Bible? What kind of a picture do you find of God in the Bible? Uh, I showed on the first slide here, the, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie here by Bill Mayer, but he asked a very, very good question. It actually will be a lot of what we'll discuss next time in the Bible study. And looking at the suffering of our world, he said, well, why doesn't he, God, just obliterate the devil and therefore get rid of evil in the world? Hey, isn't that a good question? That really gets to uh, a core foundational issue. We have an all-powerful God, an all-loving God, and then we have shocking images that come out of starving children and uh, we ask why. We try to understand. And there are lots, of, of course, now on the web, you just pull up things like atheist websites. And you can see, here's one called thethinkingatheist.com. And you can see the images here that uh, lead people to either say, well, if there is a God, is he weak? Is he bad? 
Is he disinterested? Or, of course, many have concluded, well, there must not be a God at all if we have such a horrible world of disease, suffering, war, uh, innocent children that, uh, that suffer. And, of course, uh, here is in a medical institution, we have a lot of scientists who have come to conclusions based on their understanding of science that there must not be a God. Watson and Crick, of course, famous for DNA discovery. And Crick said the God hypothesis is rather discredited. People like myself get along perfectly well with no religious views. And Watson said every time you understand something, religion becomes less likely. Religion is a myth from the past. So again, we're starting to open this Bible, but I think we shouldn't ignore uh, the concerns and the thoughts of others. And these are some of the, the real issues that we'll try to get. I won't be able to answer all of these, obviously, today, but I want to at least consider what it is we're dealing with. Well, perhaps one reason for studying the Bible, at least for some, is if this is God's Word, um, we want to have the right list of doctrines. We'd like to have the, the rules that God gave. We want to be able to understand that. We want to have the, the best doctrinal list of beliefs of anyone. And uh, maybe that's not a, a bad thought. I mean, certainly it's, it is important to do uh, the things that God has asked. The problem is we just think about lots of people in history, but just to mention one, the Pharisees from 2,000 years ago, uh, I think you'd have to say in world history, the most devout rule keepers that have ever lived. What list did they keep? Did they keep the law? Boy, did they try. They even made an additional list of rules. They were trying so hard to keep the law. How was their church attendance? Excellent. Jesus met with them all the time in church. They were there. Did they pay tithe? Uh, Jesus even commented on the fact that they would even tithe the little seeds. They were so careful trying to keep the rules. Did they read their Bibles? Remember Jesus commented, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly. Okay, the Pharisees read the same 39 books of the Old Testament that we have, but they read them, and they carefully tried to obey the words in there. Did they, were they involved in mission work? Remember Jesus said, you send a missionary halfway around the world to win one convert. Okay, so they were actively involved in mission work. Did they keep the Sabbath? And I think it's one of the most shocking verses in the entire Bible for me. Jesus died. And in John, immediately after his death, we read this. Then the Jews, since it was the day of Sabbath preparation, and so the bodies wouldn't stay on the crosses over the Sabbath, it was a high holy day that year, petitioned Pilate that their legs be broken to speed death and the bodies taken down. Hey, why were they trying to speed death? Because they wanted to get home to keep the Sabbath. And so we have this incredible, it's unbelievable, really, that the rules were more important in their mind. I mean, who was it that was on the cross? Who were they going home to worship on the Sabbath? Um, that just having the right list, there must be something more. Well, perhaps another thought is, uh, well, I want to be connected to God. I want to read the Bible because I'd like to have a happy life. I'd like to be healthy. I'd like to have a a family like this and to uh, be well off and uh, you know but it doesn't take long whether you believe in the Bible or not it doesn't take long to read that the best friends that God had in the Bible let's just go through this list very quickly very first individual born Abel God did not prevent Cain from killing Abel look what happened to Job Isaiah 
from extra-biblical sources, it would appear that he was sawed in half in a hollow log by King Manasseh. Jeremiah, stoned to death in Egypt. Ezekiel, one of the few friends God had in the Babylonian captivity. His wife died, and God told him, don't mourn, it will be a sign. John the Baptist, Jesus called him the greatest prophet that's ever lived. Jesus was right there in proximity to John the Baptist when he was beheaded. James, of course, was killed. Peter, crucified upside down. John, imprisoned on the island of Patmos when he wrote the book of Revelation. And Paul goes into detail about how many times he was stoned and left for dead, imprisoned, and, of course, finally killed. And, of course, we put Jesus on the list here as well. So reading the Bible from a certain perspective would not be necessarily encouraging that this is a formula for uh, health and wealth and all kinds of good things in life. Okay, so maybe we just want to be on the right road. We want to get to heaven. Um, and certainly, um, who doesn't want to be in heaven someday? But the question is, why isn't it more clear? Where can you open the Bible and just say straightforward, this is how you get there? Well, we might, uh, let's say, what did Jesus say about this? And so here's a pretty straightforward question. A man said to Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do to receive eternal life? Okay, so are we going to get it straight now from Jesus? This is how we get there. And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments if you want to enter life. Is that how you would answer someone? Keep the rules, keep the commandments. And he said, what commandments? Jesus answered, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not accuse anyone falsely, respect your father and mother, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the man said, I've obeyed all these commandments. What else do I need to do? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven, then come and follow me. And of course, when the young man heard this, he went away very sad because he was very rich. Um, is this a formula for making it to heaven? Keep the rules, sell everything you have, and uh, there's a, a lot to say about this passage here. Notice the man asked, what good thing must I do? Jesus made a list that would seem... Uh, Impossible from his perspective. The point I'm trying to bring up now is the Bible, I mean, 66 books. Uh, why doesn't it seem, couldn't it be more concise, just with a brief list of here's what you need to do? And we go through, and when we talked about Romans last time, we discussed some of these differences here. Paul would say in Romans 2, for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. And we think about that, we read over one chapter, and of course, uh, a verse here very important to Luther, where Paul would say, for we conclude that a person is put right with God only through faith. And so which is it? Obeying the law through faith. And then he would say, and not by doing what the law commands. So we, we try to put all this together. We go over to James, maybe for some help. And James would say, my friends, what good is it for you to say that you have faith if your actions do not prove it? Can that faith save you? And then he goes on to talk about Abraham. How is he put right with God? Of course, Paul said, by faith. And James would say it was through his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Okay, and the only point to make for now, I think there's a good way of explaining all of this, that why does the Bible need to be so long with so many stories? Why can't we have a list, maybe a one-page Bible? This is what I require. Believe this, do this, signed God. It would save us... Uh, <laughs> 
would save us a lot of time, wouldn't it? We didn't have to get together every week to, to go through the Bible. If we just had, uh, you know, why do we need long lists of genealogies and details of battles and so on? And of course, when we look, and I had to condense this greatly, if you go to Wikipedia, just look at Christian denominations. I was amazed, I had no idea there were so many branches of Catholicism, uh, hundreds of them, and Protestantism. And we go through the long list. Everyone has read the Bible, interprets things in a different way, has a different list of what is important, a different list of beliefs. Uh, couldn't the Bible be more straightforward? Why is the Bible mainly a story? A good 80% of the Bible is a story, not lists of do's and don'ts. Well, I think we'd have to all agree that the central figure in the Bible is Jesus Christ. And even from uh, someone who's perhaps not uh, a Christian, and uh, there are lots of quotes like this, H.G. Uh, Wells, of course, famous author, who said, I'm a historian, not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And I think undeniably that's true, just in terms of impact in the world. Okay, but uh, uh, this quote of C.S. Lewis, which is very famous, I think is a very good argument, but now there's a, a big movement against his thesis here in Mere Christianity, where he would say, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. I think that's a very good argument when you read the gospel, uh, we're really not left with a good option that Jesus was just a good person who had some good moral teachings. He claimed to be God in human form. And uh, we'll spend a lot of time going through those claims of Jesus. But some of you who may be aware of the uh, historical Jesus movement here recently have attacked this idea of C.S. Lewis. Here's just one quote. This is a false trilemma, the Lord, lunatic, or liar. It overlooks a fourth option, Lord, liar, lunatic, or legend. How do we know that the Gospels are an accurate record of events? What if Jesus' words and deeds were greatly exaggerated or even outright invented by later writers? And so this has been a big subject here in, in recent years. Can you really trust that the words of Jesus, the story in those four Gospels is accurate? Um, for the sophomore students, last year we spent uh, two hours going through um, two talks, Can You Trust the Bible? I went through a lot of details, but I think this is maybe a place to begin um, a Bible study. At least let's ask, can you trust the gospel account? Because if we can't trust the life, the death, the words of Jesus Christ, then I think we really don't have much to, uh, to anchor on to. So I'd like to get into this a little bit with um, a few points. This is an excellent book called The Jesus Legend, which is actually a case for the historical reliability of the synoptic Jesus tradition. It's really an excellent and thorough book, so a number of the points that I'm going to bring out come from this book. So let's try to make a case. Can we really trust that there was a Jesus and that we accurately have the story and the words? 
Some of you might remember, we read through uh, some examples of Gnostic Gospels last year and how they're so mystical, ethereal. They have a completely different feel from the four Gospels that are in the Bible. And when people try to evaluate, is this legendary or is this real? They look for certain things. And the description uh, here in the Bible uh, makes it very believable because we have words like this. First John 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. Notice how many times he's saying we were there. We saw him, we touched him, we heard him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard. It goes out of his way to say it was real. We saw it. We were there. And uh, there's so many passages. Just to bring up another one here, Luke 1, this just sounds credible. Luke would write, Dear Theophilus, many people have done their best to write a report of the things that have taken place among us. They wrote what we have been told by those who saw these things from the beginning and who proclaimed the message. And so, Your Excellency, because I have carefully studied all these matters from their beginning, I thought it would be good to write an orderly account for you. Okay, and the, the Gnostic writings do not have this very specific um, historical uh, flavor to it. These are things that are very believable to me. It's actually called the embarrassment factor. And what this refers to as things, if you are making this up, and whenever there's a legendary figure in history, um, all of this, this aspect, the embarrassment factor, is left out. These things you would never make up, because they're embarrassing. You're the disciples of a legendary figure, you'd make sure if you're making this up, or adding superfluous details, you would take these things out. And there are so many of them. So again, you look at ancient records of legendary figures, and their disciples, their followers, are always heroes, doing great things. And uh, just... For example, things that were so countercultural in Jesus' time, just the views towards women. You would never make this up. The Samaritan woman at the well, well, what is believable about that is that the disciples were incredibly offended that Jesus would be talking no less with a woman, but a Samaritan woman. Okay, you're trying to make Jesus out to be a hero. In that time, you would leave that out. The Canaanite woman, heathen woman, remember how offended again the disciples were that he was giving her the time of day. You would not make that up. And how about this one? The woman caught in adultery, caught in the very act, and Jesus forgave her. Go and sin no more. Um, no uh, monk in a monastery would come up with a story like that. It just has the ring of credibility. And of course, after the resurrection, there's this incredible story here of who's at the tomb. It's the women. And what are the men doing? They're scared to death, right? They're hiding, okay? And, and now you're coming along, you're Peter, you're John, and you're going to write this story, and uh, the only explanation is it just seems like it really happened that way. The women, bravely at the tomb, uh, the disciples hiding. Just things like, uh, you have Jesus saying, why do you call me good? Okay, why would you put in something like that? How do you explain that? Uh, or people saying he has a demon, just the fact that he's hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Uh, it's believable because it is, seems unbelievable that God would come in human form and hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and was hated for it. And just little details 
Jesus is traveling around, and we have a comment like he was unable to perform any miracles there. That's kind of an odd comment. Uh, God in human form can't perform any miracles here. Uh, It's just, it's believable because that's what happened. Now, this is the the way the book of Matthew ends. Okay, Jesus just going out to be resurrected, and the 11 disciples went to the hill in Galilee where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, even though some of them doubted. Uh, Again, why would you add that? It doesn't look good. Okay, but apparently some of them doubted, and that's the way they felt. They wrote it down. It gives a ring of credibility to it. Okay, was anyone expecting a Messiah like this? When Jesus would say, the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve. You're going to make this up. A Messiah comes to serve, not to be served. It was so contrary to what anyone expected. The only explanation is that he really said that. Okay, even his family. When his family heard about it, they set out to take charge of him because people were saying he's gone mad. And even his family doubting him. And of course, if you really wanted to make Jesus out to be the Messiah in that time, uh, to write a story of someone dying on a cross, I mean, the worst form of death possible, and uh, well, let's have him say, as he dies, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that instill confidence that the one dying on the cross actually was God in human form? Again, the only explanation is that really happened. He really said that. And we have to struggle with the words and what they mean. But the point is, it seems only credible to say this is actually what he said. It seems believable. And again, the disciples. In the legendary account, disciples are always heroes. And quite honestly, in the Gospels, the disciples appear quite uh, dull many times. And uh, we have Peter. Wouldn't you want to leave this out here? Uh, Where Jesus would say, get away from me, Satan. Uh, You wouldn't want that in there. What is Thomas known as? Doubting Thomas. Because he really was. And Jesus would say things like, love your enemies. And then we just read on another chapter and the disciples say, should we call down fire from heaven on them? Okay, and remember Jesus scolded them when they said that. Um, Just interesting things, like in Mark. We read in Mark 6.30 that Jesus fed 5,000. And we read over one chapter later, and there are 4,000. And Jesus uh, kind of says, hmm, I wonder how we could feed all these people. And he asks the disciples, what do you think we could do? Well, just read back one chapter. Jesus, you just fed all of them. And uh, they say, well, it would take a lot of money to feed that many people. And so they didn't learn the lesson. And he did it a second time. Again, they appear uh, rather dull in the Bible. Now, how would you like this? The most read book in human history. And uh, how would you like this story about you? Then the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus with her two sons, James and John, and bowed before him and asked him for a favor. What do you want? Jesus asked her. And she answered, promise me that these two sons of mine will sit at your right and your left when you are king. Would you want it recorded that your mom asked Jesus uh, if you could sit at his right and left side? Again, the only explanation is she really did ask. Okay, and it's there in the record. Okay, details. It would seem we don't need details, but the details suggest that these were real people who were there. So we read about Simon, who was coming, notice how many details, who was coming into the city from the country, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. 
And then we'd read, Simon was from Cyrene and was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you can read on later and find out a little bit about these people, that there actually was a person named Simon, okay, who was the father of two people that the disciples apparently knew. Okay, things like this. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the wife of Zebedee. All these little things, we might just read over it, but it just suggests with so many details that they were really there. The blind beggar had a name, Bartimaeus, and he was the son of another individual who was known. And just read little passages like this in Mark 14. Notice how many details. It was two days before the festival of Passover. The chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for a way to arrest Jesus, so we know what they're doing. Jesus was in Bethany. He was at the house of Simon. We know that Simon suffered from a dreaded skin disease. While Jesus was eating, a woman came in with an alabaster jar. But all the details about the people, where they're from, who they are, um, again, suggests these were people who were there, who were witnesses. And this passage in Luke, in the space of two verses, so many specific, credible details. It was the 15th year of the rule of, rule of Emperor Tiberius. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was ruler of Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler of the territory of this region. Licinius was ruler of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. At that time, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. All of these specific details suggest this was really researched and it's credible. Things, uh, why do we need to know this? Well, it must have happened. What about those 18 people in Siloam who were killed when the tower fell on them? This was an event that happened at that time. And it's, it's mentioned. Superfluous details. Things that it wouldn't seem we need to know. But they are the hallmark of a credible, not a legendary account. Characteristic and eyewitnessed account. So things like the disciples in the boat, getting their nets ready. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Do we need to know that they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men? No, it's just it happened. And so they wrote it down that way. Do we need to know that the people sat down in rows, in groups of hundreds, in groups of 50? Okay, that's just happened. That's just the way that uh, they did it. Or what about this? Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net ashore, full of big fish, 153 in all. And uh, I've heard someone uh, say, well, that number must be important, 153, let's add it to this year, and maybe come up with a date or something like that. And uh, again, it's not important, but it's just, they went to the trouble of counting the fish, and it's kind of cool, there were 153, so they wrote it down. <laughs> All right, so uh, C.S. Lewis actually addressed this claim, that this is a legend. And he said, I have been reading poems, vision literature, myths, all my life. I know what they are like. I know that one of them is not like this. Not one of them is like this. And I think he's absolutely right. So I think we really are left, if the gospel record is reliable, we really do have a choice of Lord, liar, or lunatic. And so uh, in conclusion, if, I think if we just... Take the starting point. I think the answers to all of the difficult questions that I raised in the beginning, and of course there are many more, I think the, the foundational point is that the one who came was God in human form. He is the answer to all of these questions. John 1 opens up with, no one has ever seen God. That is, no one has ever really seen or really understood God. But the unique one, who is himself God, 
And in fact, if you look any of the very recent translations, the understanding of these ancient manuscripts, that this is the term God really is used. The one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. He came to reveal God to us. And we have Jesus saying some very radical things, like the Father and I are one. Or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And many times Jesus claimed to be the I am. Who was it that spoke to Moses at the burning bush? The I am. Uh, Jesus is God all the way through the Bible. And we'll have to talk about this next time. Who was that God of the Old Testament? Well, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He shows up as a new figure 2,000 years ago, but he's God. It really was Jesus that we're talking about here in the Old Testament, the I am. And so, again, if the gospel account is credible, then what we are faced with is really a God like none other. I mean, a God that would spend nine months in the womb and be totally dependent for a period of time on one of his own sinful children for food, for diaper change. Uh, It's pretty remarkable that he would grow up as a humble carpenter and allow his own children, his own creatures, to torture him to death. It's, It's quite a shocking picture of who God is. And so if I could just say, in conclusion, this is kind of, uh, this will be what we're going to try to do here in this Bible study. I think the words here are so significant. We discussed, what is eternal life? Here it is in plain words, from Jesus. This is eternal life. And it'd be interesting to know how would all of us answer that question. What is eternal life? Uh, knee-jerk is to think, well, it's, it has to do with the length of time. It's living forever. You notice how Jesus defined eternal life. To know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The words here, to know, as we go through the Old Testament, this is referred to so many times. Adam and New Eve, and of course they had a son. To know means intimacy. It means friendship. Eternal life is to know you. I have shown your glory on earth. I have finished the work, the mission that you gave me to do. So what was the mission? What was the work of Jesus Christ? And it's really incredible. He would go on to say what it was. I made your name known to the people you gave me. Name in the Bible is synonymous with character. If you read the Message Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson translates this, I revealed your character to the men and women you gave me. The mission of Jesus. I mean, we see how God is so misunderstood today. Jesus came to reveal who God really is. He came to reveal God's true character. And again, eternal life is not something that begins... After we die. Okay, eternal life is something we have to experience now. Eternal life is about a relationship with a person. Okay, so what are we hoping to get out of the Bible? We're hoping to come to a clear understanding of who God is, that our trust in God is restored, that relationship with God is restored. And a last verse. Here's a good verse from Jesus. Why do we study the Bible? He said to the Pharisees, You have your heads in your Bibles constantly. Because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And so as we go through the Old Testament, uh, we're going to try to read the Old Testament entirely as a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll try to bring Jesus in to all of those stories. And eternal life is, again, not about a book, but about a person. The book is only helpful if it brings us to the person. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that... uh, We do have a book that uh, 
gives us incredible information about who you are. Help us to take this seriously. Um, May we uh, ask difficult questions. All of us have questions. And we ask that you would give us the answers that would ultimately bring us to see more clearly who you are. Amen.